gotten along well with beehives, don't you think? Oh, yes, he liked to use them as an aesthetic piece. Did he? See? Now there's your bee program. <laughs> wow. Well, as she mentioned, I, I'm a lot more comfortable with cows than I am with bees. Um, I've, I've quite frankly used the Montana Historical Society gatherings to research something I don't know anything about because then I learned something new. And luckily, Tammy here is a beekeeper, and there may be other beekeepers. Are there any other beekeepers in the, in the group here? Oh, good. So if I say something really egregious, <laughs> you've got about four choices. One is to shoot your hand up and go, <laughs> wrong. Um, and I won't be offended, because I do this so I can learn something. Uh, you could tell me after the break. You could quietly come up later and go, boy, that was great. Or you could let me go on in ignorance, which really wouldn't be a very satisfactory solution for anybody. So don't hesitate, you know, a little shake of the head and I'll go, you want to straighten that out. So um, I came to the conclusion after researching these little critters, um, vegetarian wasps is one way I read them described, is that in the relationship between the beekeeper and the bee, we're not the boss. The bee is the boss. Um, they get us to build hives. This is only part of a hive, and I'll maybe I'll just pass it around. This shows all the little bits and pieces. The stand on the bottom is important for what it lets in and what it keeps out. There's a, a queen excluder that keeps the, the queen from getting up into the area where you've got the combs that you're going to harvest the honey from. And this is, as you can tell, quite an old box hive, but they haven't changed a lot since about the 1850s when a man named Langston patented the first one. So I'll just pass it around. I'm going to be passing lots around. So um, we carry them hundreds and hundreds of miles sometimes to get the very best nectar. and. Um, we provide winter quarters, which sometimes includes giving them sugar water to get them through the tough times. Uh, we protect them from marauding rodents and insects and various and sundry kinds of bugs. And our wage for all of this is generally less than half of the product that they provide. So who's working for whom? Um, but science changes history a lot. And my first introduction to bees was in a book about a Greek slave, and I got a lot of misinformation from that. Um, in ancient Greece, the queen bee was believed to be a king, and the Roman poet Virgil in the first century BC wrote of heaven-born honey, the gift of air, and he told of the wondrous show of a tiny state of high-hearted princes and a whole nation's ordered works and ways, tribes and battles. Slight is the field of labor, but not slight the glory. And it wasn't until the late 1500s or early 1600s that the general populace became convinced that the king was a queen, and that was done by dissection. Can you imagine? I mean, I understand they can lay hundreds of eggs a day, the queen can, and you're Never mind. <laughs> I never took biology, you can tell. 
Um, conventional wisdom told us until very recently that the honeybee evolved in Africa, but genome sequencing has revealed that they evolved in China, from which they wandered off to Africa, and then they were brought all over the place. And despite the widespread belief that honeybees did not exist in America until coming over around the time of the pilgrims, um, they found a fossilized honeybee in Nevada that shows there was a honeybee species in North America about um, 14 million years ago, but it went extinct. And another possibility is that those pilgrim bees didn't wend their way clear across the country. Um, Russian explorers, if you've been out to California, there's Fort Ross and those places down the coast, might have brought them in the early years to the west coast, so they kind of met in the middle. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote lots of cool stuff, wrote, the honeybee is not a native of our continent. The Indians could incur with us in the tradition that it was brought from Europe, but when and by whom we know not. The bees have generally extended themselves into the country a little in advance of the white settlers. The Indians, therefore, call them the white man's fly and consider their approach as indicating the approach of the settlements of the whites. So these were like a distant early warning <laughs> if anybody remembers the dew line. Jefferson's overseer, um, Edmund Bacon, had maintained more than 40 hives. And I've learned to really distrust first, biggest, only. You always find another one. Um, however, I have found one really early verifiable bee story. When the Lewis and Clark expedition was fitting out, Clark purchased 420 pounds of sheet lead, which, were made, which was made into 52 canisters, each of which held four pounds of gunpowder. They were capped at the top with a cork and um, beeswax. And they made it all the way out here. So beeswax probably made it to Montana before bees did. I wandered through the Lewis and Clark exhibit last week. It was funny. I thought I was done with the program. I said, I'm taking the day off. I got up there. It's full of bees. <laughs> but it was fun because um, another thing I learned was the gun patches for the balls and those old rifles. Were, were impregnated with tallow and beeswax, so every time the gun was fired, it lubricated the barrel. And then there was a less successful beeswax story from the Lewis and Clark expedition. Have any of you heard about the iron boat that was going to be such a wonderful thing? Well, he was going to caulk the seams with pine pitch, only there were no pines around when they needed to, so he tried a mix of charcoal and tallow and beeswax and the boat sank like a stone. <laughs> Skipping forward to the Gold Rush era, I found some mentions of bees in the early newspapers, which started in the 1860s, of course, but they weren't uh, referring to hives. There was a mine in German Gulch called the Honeycomb, and the superintendent of a stamp mill where ore was crushed was busy as a bee. There was honey in the state, though, although there weren't hives. They need to get the hives and the bees together somehow. But um, it was brought in by ox train from Utah, 10-pound ten, ten can, excuse me, 10-pound can for 90 cents. There's a lot of bee philosophy. 
One quote from the 1860s really caught my eye in the Montana Post. It said, good nature, like the little busy bee, collects sweetness from every herb, while ill nature, like the spider, collects poison from honey flowers. The sentiment was kind of uplifting, but the science is pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> Bees and spiders do have one thing in common that I find really interesting. They're both recyclers. Bees will recycle the wax. They have to make 10 pounds of hemp, honey to part of, pardon me, one pound of um, wax. So they reuse the wax. Spiders eat their old, their old web for protein and web material. I found one clue about the rapid spread of honeybees across the nation. And as early as 1867, Italian queen bees and starter colonies were being mailed to various parts of the country in a small cylinder of wire cloth with a honey-soaked sponge at either end. They found a ready market of three to five dollars each. And I was impressed that they could do that back then. I was more impressed when I read that they were shipped from New York to Australia, and typically 50% survived the journey, arriving in 45 days. Wow. Yeah. And here's another one of those first stories about which I'm skeptical. Be sure to wave your hand because I can run on. Right. Thanks. <laughs> um, Mrs. Goodell lived uh, along 10-mile 10, 10 Creek. Um, in the 1880s, and it says she was probably the first successful beekeeper in Montana, she had two starter colonies of bees shipped from the States in 1880. And the next year, she harvested 75 pounds of honey from the hives, besides leaving 100 pounds for the bees. She planted buckwheat and clover for them, something which is still done, by the way, um, but reported the bees didn't resort to that field until they had gathered pollen and nectar from wildflowers in the neighborhood. Commercial beekeeping wasn't really a commercial, <coughs> a little redundant there, um, in the early Montana years because it was a good cottage industry. You could have your hive, a few more chickens than you really needed, you'd sell extra eggs, you'd sell extra honey, you might have a little extra milk to sell. So there wasn't precisely the need, and if your farm had it and this farm didn't, there was a lot of trading going on. The first real push that I found to increase honey production was during World War I, when sugar was in short supply. The Missoulian, in 1917, reported that the lowly little bee is worth just about five times as much today as he was, <laughs> when the World War began. Owners of bees were lucky in 1914 if they could get a nickel a pound for honey. A few weeks ago, the British government ordered 3,000 pounds of American honey and couldn't get a spoonful at any price. It's been known for years that honey is a good antiseptic, and uh, during the Great War, is that a stupid name for a war? <laughs> the Nazi Great War. Um, the Russians applied it to wounds to promote healing, and one current natural, National Institutes of Health bulletin states that applied to a wound, including burns, it prevents infection, promotes healing, and eases pain. It has a little bit of hydrogen peroxide in it, which is one of the things that helps keep down the bacteria. So there's validity there. 
bee colonies increased annually until just after the war, and then they dropped off again. And I found these stories in unexpected places, part of that vacation day up in Great Falls. I thought, okay, I'm done with Lewis and Clark and the bees. I think I'll go to the Russell Calvary. Well, I walked in, looked at the, ske the sculptures, and immediately remembered he did them in wax first. <laughs> so I'll pass around a, a wax. Well, I can pass them in three different directions. A lot of them were later cast in bronze. They'll look familiar to you. C. Wellington Furlong. Isn't that a terrific name? Wrote about his sculpting. He said, one area in which Charlie seemed to need little guidance was sculpting. Whereas painting and drawing were an acquired skill, working with clay and beeswax was an unconscious act for Charlie. He could model a human head without looking and did so frequently behind his back or under the table, as casually as a farmer might will a stick of wood. And I it conjured up a picture of a farmer trying to whittle it. <laughs> Not a good idea. World War II came along and sugar rationing, because by then we were getting a lot of our sugar from the Pacific areas, um, brought about a second surge of honey production, and recipes replacing sugar with honey were circulated. They're really good, too. You go online and try some. Um, and if anybody needs to be gluten-free, I kind of made up a gluten-free honey peanut butter cookie recipe. Anyway, the big battle that I intended to get into was the one fought here in the Bitterroot Valley over bitterroot alfalfa. How many of you know what bitterroot alfalfa is? How many of you know what that is? <laughs> Please do not open these. I don't want to spread any seeds of the um, napweed, Centauria maculosa, in the bitterroot, right? <laughs> yeah. I am also passing around leaves in a bag. If you don't know what napweed is and you want to be sure in the future, this bag, I, I weeded out the seeds. Can you weed the weed? Sure. Anyway, take a little piece of leaf, roll it between your fingers, and then go like that. And then I apologize because you're going to be going. <laughs> it tastes really bad. And that's the problem. If you've got it in disturbed soil, overgrazed soil, dry conditions, the livestock are going to eat the stuff that tastes good, and the napkin's going to have a chance to take over. And science changes again. I was taught when I came to the ranch back in the 70s that it exudes a toxin from the root system, which inhibits the germination of other seeds. It just, they've changed it. It's actually an association with a soil fungus which sucks the carbon out of other plants and weakens them, allowing the napweed to take over more readily. So you just can't keep up with those science guys. Let's see where we are. How many moments do I have? Three? Oh, cool. Because there's a lot more. <laughs> so in response to this invasion of, of napweed, and it causes a beautiful purple bloom across the hills, um, unless you're trying to grow hay there, um, the 
honey production in this valley went up considerably. And boy, did I learn a lot about honey as I was wandering around. I mentioned that buckwheat, and there's a picture of buckwheat on the front of this label. And this is some napweed honey. And you can see there's a considerable difference. And there is nothing in this but what the bees collected. Um, so this is what napweed honey naturally looks like. This is what buckwheat honey naturally looks like. They're around too. Did you purchase those here in the valley? Um, no, I didn't. Wurstner Brothers up in Missoula have the napweed honey, and I don't know who they are. Where, where would people go, you know, to... I mean, they process it here, and it's sold all over the place, but I don't... Anybody know? <laughs> oh, well. Is up by By Arlie? Oh, yeah, there's a honey place up by Arlie, isn't there? <coughs> See, now you have a, an excuse to go to Arlie, if anybody needs an excuse to go to Arlie. Okay. So... There's a poster here that the Ag Department, State Ag Department sent me, and there are these little honeycombs all over it. And those are places where it's a, a considerable contributor to the economy of the state. And we're ranked second in the nation for honey production. Um, my latest stat was 2013. They produced just under 15 million pounds of honey. And I understand that the average worker Worker bee, who is a female also, by the way. The, the drones just hang around the hive, wait till it's time to chase the queen. And there is some science that says they help clean up a little bit. I, I picture it as taking the, honey, would you please take out the garbage? Um, anyway, but um, that they, in their, in their short life, produce one twelfth of a teaspoon full of nectar. Does that sound right? Yeah, and so 15 million. Um, pounds of honey is a lot of bee spit. I have a question. Uh, huh? I have a question. Sure. When, when you say it's buckwheat or if it's in snapweed, uh -huh. how do they know that for sure? Because well, do the bees just go, okay, well, I'm, go, I'm doing buckwheat today? <laughs> or do they go, okay, I mean, can there be a mix? What you've got, where you place your hives, and as long as the pollen and the nectar hold out, they're inclined to gather there. I would not bet that they don't find something. Ooh, this looks interesting. And oh, try okay. Let's try this one. Okay. Um, so it's mostly that. Yeah, they, the, the and um, buckwheat is sort of a problem. <coughs> it's used as um, a crop when other things aren't available. And it's, <coughs> this side of the divide, it's okay to plant it. But it isn't generally grown in the eastern part of the state, because a lot of Montana wheat shipped to Japan. And there's a genetic predisposition in the Japanese to sort of go into anaphylactic shock if they get anything with buckwheat. And so they won't buy any wheat from an area where they are also growing buckwheat. Um, and, uh, but I'll buy it, good stuff. Anyway, so they get around a lot. You heard about my big exciting trip up to Great Falls. About as far as I've gotten lately. The bees really travel. Long about February, they're loaded onto trucks and taken to, not everybody's bees, but the big commercial operations, taken to Southern California where they pollinate the almond trees. 
And then they head up to Washington to do apple trees. And then they go back down to Oregon. And I thought, they need MapQuest. Yeah. But they don't. Uh, I learned that the first blossoms on an apple tree produce a better apple than the later blossoms. So by removing the good pollinators, they, the later blossoms don't generate an apple, and you have a, a better crop and a stronger tree. So then they go down to Oregon, pollinate fruit trees, then they come back here. And uh, in the western part of the state, <coughs> excuse me, they chiefly pollinate alfalfa, clover, and knapweed. In the eastern part, alfalfa, clover, and sunflowers. And then along about October, well, September, they draw off the honey. Have any of you ever used a draw knife to peel a pole? How many people in here have ever? Oh, good, yeah. Well, the, the little knife they used to, to peel the, historically anyway, the little cap off the ends of the cells in the honeycomb looked like a little bitty draw knife. And I brought a, this would go this way with a frame around it in the top part of your hive. And they build out from either side, and you lift that frame out, you take the cap off. They use a centrifuge often to draw the honey out. I uh, found a fallen tree that had a beehive in it, and I thought, oh, cool, I will harvest it. It's kind of a mess. And I figured that, well, wax melts. If I put it in a pan, a double boiler, and get it warm, the wax will come to the top. But I didn't use the pan again. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad people produce it. I can just buy it so much. Oh, well. Um, so they used to be shipped out of the state. And I'll put some of that paperwork up, showing hundreds of pies brought in from all over the place. And, um, now a lot of places think that a cold warehouse suffices and you, you think, why cold? Well, there, there could be tens of thousands of bees in the hive and they keep it pretty warm. If you kept it in a warm spot, they might go, oh, spring is here, let's go out. Um, so uh, they keep them pretty cool. And uh, the idea of itinerant hives did not originate in America. And back to my Greek philosophy there, Celsus. Has anybody been to Ephesus and seen the beautiful library here? You must have been to Ephesus. Isn't that fantastic? It was named for, I mean, it was built in honor of the man who said, after the vernal pastures are consumed, the bees should be transported to places abounding with autumnal flowers. And in ancient Egypt, in order to provide pollen and nectar when bees had fully harvested their home range, they were taken by boat with beekeepers like shepherds following them along and letting them feed and then loading them back while they can blow them. <laughs> the queens in the hive, they go back to mom or whatever. So are you familiar with, okay, <laughs> with those uh, little sheds they make for dairy cows, your bottle feeding the cows? Well, I kept going by these alfalfa fields, and there were these little dairy calf sheds hugging me. And so, because I have no pride, I leaped out of my truck and flagged down a guy on a tractor. And he said, those are sheds to shelter the leaf-cutter bees, which are more effective at pollinating the alfalfa than the honeybees. And um, there are a lot of different pollinators, uh, butterflies, wasps. Agricultural with little brushes going. <laughs> yeah. 
And I can't tell the story here because I don't know if your delicate sensibilities would be offended, but if you can ever get a hold of Charlie Russell's Rawhide Rollins censored stories, read about the former bartender who decided to <coughs> raise pumpkins. That should get him going, right? Um, one of the most incredible things about modern day bees is they can detect explosives. They brought them out to the pistol range, firing range at Montana State Prison. They had them over at Fort Harrison on the firing range. What they do, they have a very sensitive sense of smell, and they're not looking for explosives. But they reward the bees when they kind of hover over an area where it is by giving them nectar. So they watch the bees, and when they find them hovering, they know to dig down there carefully. So. Um, I'm going to end this so that after the program and after your program, I've got a bunch of stuff up here. I hope you'll have a moment to take a look at it. Um, but I want to quote this. It's the earliest uh, bee lore I found just about in America. It's from 1792. We may just observe that the hive is a school to which numbers of people ought to be sent. Prudence, industry, benevolence, public spiritedness, economy, neatness, and temperance are all visible among bees. These little animals are all actuated by a social spirit which forms them into a body politic, intimately united and perfectly happy. They all labor for the general advantage, having no partial interest, no selfish distinction to support, they are happy because the concurrence of their several labors inevitably produces abundance which contributes to the riches of each individual. Let us compare human societies to this and they will appear altogether monstrous. Necessity, reason, and philosophy have established us for the commendable purpose of mutual aid and benefit, but a spirit of selfishness destroys all and one half of mankind to load themselves with superfluities, leaves the other destitute of common necessities. Okay, now, this is a mason bee hive. I'm gonna grow, I'm gonna raise shelter mason bees next year. Take a good look at that. This is not beehive. I know that. If you're going, God, she doesn't learn anything. Um, <laughs> paper wasps, but it shows self-instruction. So that'll be up here too, and I'm done. Thank you.